I'd like, I want to welcome you to Severn. Um, if you're here for uh, the first time or um, for the first time in a while, this is a great time to hop in because this Sunday we're actually starting a brand new series. It's going to be a six-week series that we're calling The Kingdom. And uh, starting today, we're going to look at, at six parables of Jesus. And this series is meant to lead us right to Easter. And so I thought on the front end of this series, it'd be a good idea to just sort of lay out for you what the teaching calendar is going to be like for the next several months because I'm excited about it. And there's a, there's a little bit of a rhyme and reason to it. So, so what we're going to do in this series is focus primarily on what Jesus said in these parables. On Easter, we're going to look at what Jesus did for us. Starting the week after Easter, we're going to get into a spiritual growth series that's all about what we're called to do in light of what Jesus has done for us. And then at the back end of that, uh, we're going to follow along in the life of David and just sort of look at at and what it all looks like. And so we basically have the, uh, the teaching calendar mapped out from today until the fall. And I think that it's going to be great because it's all based on God's word. And he said that his word isn't going to return void. So how could it not be great? But um, today we are going to start uh, looking at, at what Jesus had to say in, in six of his most famous parables. We're going to begin today with a parable of the sower. And uh, it's found in Matthew Chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 1 to 9, where Jesus gives the parable, and then verses 18 to 23, where he explains it. It goes like this. It says, On that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on rocky ground, where there wasn't much soil, and they sprang up quickly since the soil wasn't deep, but when the sun came up, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered. Others fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them. Still others fell on good ground and produced a crop, some 100, some 60, And some thirty times what was sown. Anyone who has ears should listen. Verse 18. You then listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And the one sown on rocky ground. This is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but is short-lived. When pressure or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the seduction of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is one who hears and understands the word, who does bear fruit and yields, some 100, some 60, some 30 times what was sown. This is God's word. The idea behind this series, and it's, it's only the idea behind this series because it's the idea behind the parables of Jesus, is that Jesus did not come into this world simply to bring forgiveness. Uh, And I want to be clear, forgiveness of sins is an unbelievably amazing thing. Um, It's just not all Jesus came to do. 
because if you think about it this way, if, if all Jesus came to bring was forgiveness, then, then in a sense, really all Jesus was coming to offer you was a second chance. And Jesus came to offer us more than a second chance. He came to offer us a second life. And so on top of forgiveness of sins, over and over again, and you're going to hear it all through these parables, Jesus talks about this thing called the kingdom of God. Now, the, the kingdom of God, uh, as hard as it is to define, the kingdom of God is nothing less than the power of God in heaven entering this world in such a way that will heal every kind of brokenness in every area of human existence. That's what the kingdom of God is, is really fundamentally about. And so when you enter into that kingdom, or maybe better said, when the power of that kingdom enters into your life, what happens is this process in which God begins healing you from all the ways that sin has broken you, and in and, and this process in which uh, you, you, you get filled with a power that enables you to change in ways that would never otherwise be possible, that process, when you enter into the kingdom and that kingdom's power enters into you, that process begins. Uh, now, I think the first and most obvious question that that raises when you talk about the kingdom of God is how do you get in? And, and the parable that we're looking at today is Jesus' answer to that question and answers the question, how do you get into the kingdom of God and how does the power of that kingdom enter and sink deeply into your own life? And the answer, according to Jesus, according to this parable, is, uh, is remarkably clear. Uh, it's that the kingdom of God comes by hearing. In this parable, you have four different kinds of soil which represent four different kinds of people. And uh, it leads to four wildly different outcomes in these four different people's lives. But the, the primary and fundamental difference between these four groups of people uh, is how they heard. And so what Jesus is saying here is uh, it's, it's clear, uh, but it's really sobering. What Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God comes by hearing, and, and therefore, right along with that, you should be very careful... Uh, you should make sure, you should be incredibly serious about making sure that you hear correctly. Because in this parable, what Jesus is explaining is that there are right and there are wrong ways to hear the message of his kingdom. And everything about your life and my life depends on how we hear. If there was another way, I certainly don't ever want to give teachings that, that you know, bum anybody out, um, but there's no way to come at this parable and be faithful to it other than to leave everybody with a real sobriety because that's what this parable's meant to do. And, and so if I you know, do my job today, we should all let, leave feeling very sobered because this is a really serious thing that Jesus is saying. Uh, what I want to do is walk through it from, from, from two angles. First, this idea that the kingdom comes through hearing, and then we're going to focus on the right and wrong ways to hear. But with that, I, I want to get right to our, our, our first, and this is really our main idea today. It's that the, the primary skill of the kingdom of God is hearing. Now, what, what Jesus is saying in this parable is that listening, uh, listening deeply, listening well, listening with an intent to understand, that is really the primary skill in the kingdom of God. 
Uh, It's a skill without which you can't enter the kingdom and the power of that kingdom can't enter into your life. And so it really is essentially, you could say, the most important thing. And not surprisingly, because Jesus would always do this with things that he did and, and, and things that he said, not surprisingly, that's a very unusual thing for Jesus to say about his kingdom, namely because no earthly kingdom has ever worked that way. When you look at it, every earthly kingdom, every human kingdom throughout history, all of them advance in the same way. They advance, they move forward uh, through force and through coercion. And even earthly leaders, you know, when you, you, you talk about kings and rulers and conquerors of old, you talk about even politicians today or people that tend to climb the highest, in, you know, in the corporate world, up the corporate ladder. Generally speaking, those are people who are great at getting a hearing. Those are people that are great at getting their message out, at getting people to listen to them. Uh, In other words, what I'm saying is that the greatest earthly leaders tend to be the worst listeners. Because if they were were really great at listening, then people would tend to dismiss them as, you know, not dynamic enough or impressive enough or decisive enough. And they'd probably be replaced with somebody who's a, a worse listener than they are because that's how the kingdoms of this world operate. They move through talking rather than listening. But Jesus is saying here that the kingdom of God is exactly the opposite, that advances through hearing, and it can only come to people who will take the time to truly, deeply listen. Uh, The reason for that is because the secret of the kingdom of God, according to this parable, is a seed. And the seed in this parable represents teaching. It represents the message of the kingdom of God, the truth about Jesus, the gospel, the entire counsel of God is found in the word of God, all of that. So the kingdom of God moves forward on the basis of hearing the truth. But it's really interesting, you know, there's there's nothing, of course, there's nothing that Jesus said or did during his time here that was, you know, not thought through. And so every metaphor that Jesus used is incredibly insightful and it's worth really considering. And it's, it's really interesting that Jesus, in this parable, Uh, chooses to liken the message of his kingdom to a seed rather than something, for instance, like a boulder. Because when a boulder comes into contact with the ground, it is impossible to miss. Uh, it's, It's forceful, it's impressive, it has an immediate impact. But in the end, all a boulder can really accomplish in in coming into contact with the ground is surface-level external change. And it it can't transform the ground so much as it it essentially just breaks the ground. But a seed is exactly the opposite of that. Meaning when a seed enters the ground, uh, it's almost impossible to notice that it's done so. It doesn't really demand anybody's attention. It's not very impressive. Uh, Most of its work, at least on the front end, is beneath the surface. And so for long periods of time, it doesn't look like that seed is really doing anything. But in the end... A seed is capable of transforming the earth in a way that a boulder never will because it can take a barren plot of land and just one seed can create gardens and forests and, 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 and life and beauty and food and shelter and all of that. And, and in the same way, while the kingdoms of this earth, and you imagine what this would have sounded like to you 2,000 years ago when you're under the authority and the influence and really the oppression of the Roman Empire, the Roman kingdom. What Jesus is saying is that in, this, in the same way, although the kingdoms of the earth have been so impressive and they, they can look so intimidating and like they have such a lasting impact and like their influence is never going to wane, what Jesus is, is saying here 
with this, this imagery is that no human kingdom will ever have the lasting impact or be capable of the long-term transformation that his kingdom will be capable of. That's the way it's going to work in this world, and it's, that's the way that it's going to work in the lives of those who receive it. Now, the reason that, that it's important to take some time to really understand what this kingdom is like and, and the uniqueness of it is because I, I just want to offer to you that, that if you're listening to this and you have not been able to put your trust in Jesus, or if you're listening to this and you have put your trust in Jesus, you're just not seeing the kind of change that you desire to see in your life, I just want to offer to you that that, that may very well be because you have misunderstood how Jesus' kingdom operates. And you thought that it should operate according to kind of the blueprint of, of every other kingdom that's ever come and gone. Uh, there's this scene in, in the life of, of John the Baptist where he's in prison. And, uh, you know, John the Baptist, obviously a, a tremendous, you know, in some ways I think you could say that John the Baptist was sort of, the, the, you know, the first you know, celebrity Christian pastor. He's the forerunner of Jesus. People are flocking to him to get baptized. Uh, incredibly courageous man with a courageous temperament. You know, he would, the way that he would speak to people, he just did not care who he offended with the truth. But there's this scene in his life where he's in prison uh, and he's getting ready to be beheaded. And so he sends messengers to Jesus and they ask Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for or should we look for somebody else? Now, no matter, no matter how you read that kind of episode in, in John's life, what he was experiencing there was a crisis of faith. But the picture that Scripture is painting there is not the picture of a person who's terrified. It's the picture of a person who's confused. Because John had, had evidently forgot, or, or perhaps he never understood to begin with, that Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, does not move forward uh, in a similar way to every other kingdom that's ever appeared and gone away on this earth. I, I don't think it's very difficult to sympathize with where John's coming from. What was going through his mind when he's in that jail cell is, okay, if I'm the forerunner to the king of kings, if, if I am on the side of the one that we have been waiting for, that is, that's going to that's gonna return and he's going to conquer and he's going to restore if I'm on his side, then why am I experiencing so much pain in my life? And why am I suffering like I'm suffering? And why am I in this jail cell staring down the barrel of my own execution when everywhere I look around me, evil is running unchecked? How, how, does that, how do those two things go together, that he really is the king and I really am on his side if I find myself in this position? And when you think about it in those terms, I think, who can't relate to that? I mean, who, who hasn't at some point in their life just paused for a moment because of whatever God is leading you through and thought, hang on a second here. If Jesus really is the king of kings, Abraham Kuyper said that there's not one square inch on planet earth over which the risen Christ does not say mine and I rule it. So who, who has not thought in following Jesus, at least at some point in your life, that hang on, if he really is the king of kings, and I really am a servant of the king of kings, then why is it that I experience all the pain that I'm experiencing right now? And why is it that I'm still so affected by the things I'm affected by? Why is it that I'm still struggling with the things that I'm struggling with? Why is it that I feel like I'm in a jail cell myself? 
And I look around and things so seldom work out the way that they're supposed to be working out. Why is that? If he really is who he said he is and, and, and I'm on his team, why doesn't it feel like we're winning? And what Jesus says through every one of these parables we're going to look at, what Jesus says through all of these parables is you still don't understand what my kingdom is like. It's not like a boulder. It's like a seed. And what that means for you and I is that it should not surprise us when this kingdom surprises us. And as I was thinking through this idea this week, it, it actually dawned on me, I don't know if this is going to make sense to you, but, but think about it this way. Do you have any idea how terrifying it would be if God did everything the way that you and I think he should do things? Do, do you know how horrified you should be if God never does anything in this world or in your life that confounds your wisdom? You know how horrifying that would be? Because what that would mean is that God is no more intelligent than you and I are. And, and pardon me for saying, you and I are not qualified to run the universe. <laughs> and so, of course, God's kingdom will at least occasionally, but, but probably frequently, operate in ways that, that don't quite make sense to us. Because really, everything about the kingdom that Jesus came to establish is just, it doesn't really make sense to us. I mean, the, the, the centerpiece... The central message and the event that really launched this kingdom, according to scripture, is this thing called the gospel. And what the, what the gospel is at the end of the day, it's this message that a king came from heaven down to earth and he triumphed and he conquered by being tortured and killed. That just, that's a, call it what it is, that's a crazy sounding message from a human perspective. And so not surprisingly, everything in this kingdom just has a, a unique way of being upside down, the exact opposite of the way that we think it should be. But you read through what Jesus had to say about what life in this kingdom is going to be like, and, and what followers of Jesus know is that in this kingdom that Jesus came to establish, the only way to find your life is by losing it. The only way to become great is by becoming humble. The only way to become rich is by giving away your wealth. And the only way to become... The only way in Jesus' kingdom to become powerful, to be molded more deeply, more holistically into the image of Jesus, according to God's word, is to be led through unimaginable pain and suffering and loss. Because it's pain and suffering and loss like nothing else that will teach us how deeply we depend on Jesus. And it's only then, and it's only then, you know this, I know this as much as we hate that, that it's only then that we can say along with the Apostle Paul that when we are weak, then we're strong. And, and for the last 2,000 years, people have, have looked at this kingdom, they've heard about this kingdom, and they've laughed, and they've mocked, and they've ridiculed, and they've scorned, and they've rejected it, just like they rejected the Savior who came to install it. And for the last 2,000 years, people on the outside looking in have thought, so, so that's supposed to change my life? And that's supposed to change the world. And Jesus, through every one of these parables, says, yes, finally you get it. Because the kingdom that will one day grow from this seed is a kingdom that will one day cover the entire world. And it will wipe away every tear. And it will conquer every evil. And it will fulfill every longing in those who receive this kingdom. And so the first question when we talk about the, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the, the very first question that these parables demand we ask ourselves 
and I'll just make this personal, is do you understand this? And what I'm asking is, do you understand the uniqueness of this kingdom? And do you see how important it is that we understand this, especially when we're doubting, and especially when we're hurting, and especially when we're suffering, and especially when the people that we love the most are going through things that we don't understand, and, and, and especially when we ourselves feel like we're John the Baptist and we're in a jail cell and what we're seeing doesn't line up with the way that we think things should be. I'll move on from this point in just a moment, but the final thing I wanted to say, the human heart, it's always done this. The human heart has always looked at God with this posture that says, why don't you do things the way I think you should do things? As as Matt Chandler says, like plankton shaking its angry fist on the back of a whale. The human heart has always looked at God with that that sort of posture. Why don't God, why don't you do things the way that I think you should do things. What we're really asking is, God, why doesn't your kingdom operate the way that every other kingdom operates? And what Jesus would say to that is, my kingdom doesn't operate the way every other kingdom has because my kingdom's going to do what no other kingdom has done. It's going to last. And so the most important thing that you and I can do is make sure that we hear and we understand and we deeply internalize and are changed by the message of this kingdom because the primary skill of the kingdom of God is hearing. Now, with that being said, now I want to get into kind of the nuts and bolts of this parable because what what Jesus is explaining in this parable is that there are, as important as it is to hear his message, there's wrong ways to hear his message. And so what this parable is, it's a diagnostic tool for the reader to be able to, to, to determine whether or not you have correctly heard his message. And the reason that's so important is because, again, what makes Jesus' kingdom so unique from every other kingdom is that with every other kingdom in human history, you know if you're a part of that kingdom. 2,000 years ago, if you're living in a province of Galatia and you know, a Roman army comes through and conquers you, there's no doubt when the dust settles that you're now a part of the Roman kingdom. You're paying their taxes, you, you know, you're, you're flying their flags, you're swearing allegiance to them, you're abiding by their rules. But what Jesus is explaining, not just in this parable, but this is something he did all throughout his ministry, is that it's, in, it's entirely possible to think that you're in this kingdom and you're not. And not only is that entirely possible, but Jesus promised that a whole lot of people are going to go through life like that. They think they're in, but they're not because they've heard, but they haven't heard correctly. There's this incredibly sobering statement Jesus makes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus promises, he says, this is a scenario that is going to be reality for so many people. Jesus said that on the last day, many are going to come to him. And they're going to say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. Jesus said on that day, he's going to look them in the eye. He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Not you used to be in, but you fell away. He's saying, you and I were never acquainted. You were never in this kingdom. And so what Jesus is is giving us in this this parable, as we look at these, these three kinds of soil, he's showing us three wrong ways to hear the message of his kingdom. And as I said on the front end, you can't be faithful to this parable in teaching it unless we walk away a little bit more sobered than we came. And so that's my goal this morning. I'm going to look at these three soils and explain the three warnings about the three wrong ways that you and I can hear the message of Jesus' kingdom. <clears throat> the first is going to be our next idea today, and it's this. Beware of listening 
with a hard heart. Matthew chapter 13, verse 19. Jesus said, when anyone hears the word about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. What this is, this is a warning about listening to the message of Jesus, but listening to it um, in, an, in an only intellectual way. So, so let's walk through this imagery. When Jesus talks about seed getting sown on a path, a path obviously was hard ground because of the thousands of footprints and, and, and hooves and wagons and carts that went across it on a daily basis. And so uh, what happens is when seed comes into contact with that ground, it hits it, but it's not able to penetrate it. And so what Jesus is warning against here is listening to his message intellectually only and in a way that 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 message never really sinks beneath the surface uh, to your heart. And what this means, soberingly enough, is that it's entirely possible to regularly come into the contact with the truth of God's word either by coming to church, listening to sermons, reading Christian books, reading the Bible personally. It's, a, it's, an, it's entirely possible to regularly come into contact with the truth of God's word, but for that truth to never penetrate beyond your intellect. And so Jesus is talking about people here to whom Christianity is merely theoretical. And so the, the question that this image forces you to ask I'm, I'm going to do my best to make all of this personal because that's what this parable is meant to do. It's meant to get us to face ourselves. The question this forces you to ask very simply is, is this personal for you? The message of the kingdom of God is something that, of course, is meant to transform the mind. It does not bypass the intellect. But in transforming the mind, it's also meant to engage the heart in such a way that begins to reshape the heart's affections and desires. And, and that that process, of course, is, is going to manifest itself differently in different people's lives. We're not all outward. We're not all very emotional because of temperament and upbringing and, and, and whatever else. So it's going to look differently in different people's lives. But one thing that every genuine believer has in common is that at some point, it stopped just being theoretical. It stopped just being conceptual. It stopped just being a set of, of abstract ideas and the truth came home. The truth became personal. When I was putting this idea together, the thought came to mind for me. I love the line from the hymn Amazing Grace that says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. What, what that's describing is a person that's had a deeply personal encounter with the truth. Because when you talk about realizing I once was lost, but now I'm found, see, the thing about theories and concepts and abstract ideas is that an idea can't find you. You only get found by a person who personally reaches out to you and grabs hold of you. And the question Jesus is asking us to ask ourselves here is, has that happened to you? Or have you just spent a lot of time around people that it's happened to? What I'm asking is, has this actually, and, and, and again, nobody can answer this for you except you. This is, a, this is a, a quiz we don't get to cheat on. The question is, has this become personal for you? Meaning, has there ever been a, a sense while you were reading or while you were praying or while you were worshiping or while you were, you were meditating, you were listening, has there ever been a sense that God was reaching out to you personally, that he was revealing things about himself or about yourself to you personally? Has, you, has your sin ever become personal to you? 
Or, or has it just been this, this kind of vague, general, you know, I'm not perfect, but who is? Has there ever been a sense that your sin has personally wounded God? And in the other side of that, has, has God's grace and has God's love ever become personal to you? Meaning, have you ever been moved as you came to a, a supernatural understanding by not just what God did for people or what God did for the world, but what he did for you personally? Because if the answer is no, if that's never happened to you, then you've been listening with a hard heart, with your intellect only, maybe for your entire life. That's the first warning that Jesus gives us. And I'm going to tell you, I think the second one is a little bit more unsettling. The second idea I want to offer you today, number two, beware of listening with a shallow heart. In, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, it says, The one sown on rocky ground... This is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but is short-lived. And when pressure or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now this, to me, is a, is a particularly frightening picture. Right? If, if the mistake that people in the first group make is that they listen to the truth only intellectually, then the mistake that people in this group make is that they listen to the truth only emotionally. Here, Jesus is describing people who have received, I'll just read his words. He says they receive the word of God with joy uh, to the point that there's even a period of growth in their life. Because if you remember in the first nine verses in describing this group of people, Jesus says that, that plants spring up really quickly in their life. And so Jesus is talking about people who, you know, unlike the first group that we just covered, these are people who have moved beyond the theoretical. These are people who are excited about Jesus. These are people who would say, Jesus has changed my life. You know, I, I really was lost, but now I'm found. I really was blind, but now I see. But, but Jesus goes on, and, and, and actually not only that, but these are people that, that the people around them would affirm that the change in their life is real because as Jesus says, their lives at least give the appearance of some front-end, immediate, explosive growth. But Jesus goes on and he says that he likens these people to shallow ground that's full of rocks where the roots can't go deep enough. And so the plants that grow, the growth that is immediately there can't bear up under the scorching heat of the sun. And so as quickly as they came, they're gone and they, they, they wither and they burn up. And the thing that burns them up, according to Jesus here, is pressure and persecution. Now the question the question that, that, that I have when I read that, that description of a person's life is how does that happen? How, how am I to understand that? How does a person, after receiving the word with joy and at least looking like there's been some immediate front-end growth, how do you explain them walking away? And, and to explain, I just want to tell you a personal story from my own life. I used to work at a company called Home Fix. My job title was a canvasser, and uh, what that meant is that I went door-to-door bothering people when they were eating dinner, offering them free estimates on windows, siding, roofing, and doors. And it's often haunted me that one day God could bring someone to the church that I knocked on their door. I don't know if it's happened yet. Uh, But this is, if I, let me just paint a picture of the scheme here. So I was, a, I was a foot soldier, and my sole purpose in life at Home Fix was to set up an appointment between you, the homeowner, 
and a representative from HomeFix, which was a salesman, but we weren't supposed to call them salesmen because people don't react well to that word, apparently, which is true. So if, if you were really good at your job, which means if you were good at talking people into things, uh, and you successfully set up an appointment with a homeowner and a representative, and you got all their information, then you had in your hand something that was called a lead. And then at the end of your shift, you would hand in your lead to your canvas manager. Uh, and, and if, when it came time, when the canvas manager called the homeowner to confirm the appointment and the homeowner followed through and a representative from HomeFix actually went to their house, then me, the canvasser, got paid. Even if the homeowner didn't buy anything, I still got paid. It sounds like a great deal. Uh, I just want to be really candid here. I made next to nothing while I was at HomeFix for one reason. Uh, I am a famously terrible salesman. But while, while I was at HomeFix, you know, you meet a lot of interesting people in that line of work. And I came across some people that um, it was unreal how good people were at this job. We had this one guy, his name was uh, J.D., and he was like a legendary figure. You know, you didn't even really know if he existed. J.D. was so good at this job, he, he one time, legend said, walked into a brand new community. I'm talking about homes that weren't even months old and somehow convinced a homeowner that he needed new windows in his home. No idea how he, how he did that. I was never able to, to do that. Never. It just was not a gift that God gave me. And I remember when I was working there, I was, uh, I was befuddled, because, which is not a term I throw around lightly, because uh, I looked around and my esteemed colleagues seemed to have all of these leads that they were generating, and I just never did that. And so I started to get curious about that, and I found out that, yes, yeah, some of them were really good salesmen, but the vast majority of the time, it's because all of my fellow employees uh, lied about everything. So what they would do is they would um, deliberately misrepresent the process to the homeowner that they were trying to get to sign up for this thing. And they would say things like, you know, uh, our salesmen are really nice, and it's a low-pressure environment, and even if you're not interested in buying today, you know, it only takes about 15 minutes, and so it'd be a really valuable experience if you change your mind later. Maybe the price will drop, all of which was a total lie. And so my MO in this job, because I wasn't good at it, I didn't have a choice except to be bluntly honest with the people at the door. So I would just straight up tell homeowners, listen, if you're not 100% certain you want to buy this stuff, you should not sign up for it. Because I, because I knew that our salesmen weren't nice, and I knew that it, would, it was going to be an incredibly pressure-filled environment. They were going to do everything they could to get you dead to rights, sign on the bottom line, and the meetings frequently took over an hour. And so I just didn't see any point in coming at that sideways. And I'm not even saying this to say that I was so full of integrity I couldn't misrepresent it. I just wasn't good enough to do it any other way. Anyway, we were at a staff meeting one day, and my canvas manager pointed out something about me. What he pointed out is that when I turned in leads, which was remarkably seldom, they had about a 99% chance of going out. Uh, because he said I did something that they call in the biz, blowing it out at the door, which is just being brutally honest with the homeowner. Now, the, the reason I did that is, is because it's just my philosophy. There's no point, in my mind, at getting people to sign up for something they don't understand. Because if you get people to sign up for something they don't understand, then they're eventually going to walk away from it. And I say that to say that's exactly what happens to people in this category Jesus is describing here. These are people who signed up for Christianity. These are people, Jesus is talking about people who did pray a prayer. These are people who did raise their hand when every 
eye was closed and every head was bowed. These are people who did walk an aisle. These are people who did get in a tank and get baptized. They signed up for Christianity. They just signed up without really understanding what they were signing up for. And and the proof of that is the fact that according to Jesus, it's suffering that makes them walk away. Now, I want to say something. I hope this doesn't sound harsh because it's not meant to. I just think it's really logical. If you can only follow Jesus, as, as, as is the case with people in the second category, if you can only follow Jesus until following Jesus costs you something, that, more than anything else, proves that you were never after Jesus. You were after what you thought Jesus was going to give you. See, these are, these are people who think, when they sign up for Christianity, they think that they're entering into Jesus' kingdom. The truth is, they're just trying to get Jesus to enter into theirs. They were never really interested in serving Jesus. They're just trying to get Jesus to serve them. They're trying to get Jesus to be a part of their agenda, believing this idea that now that Jesus has come along into my life, he's going to help me accomplish my goals and get what I really want in life. And of course, when Christianity turns out to not be like that, because Christianity is definitively not like that, they walk out. Probably 15 years ago, I heard something that a, a, a speaker said at some conference. This really stayed with me, really sobered me up, really spoke to me. He said, everybody wants enough Jesus to get into heaven. I mean, when you talk about, even if you're skeptical, if, 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 if people will grant you that, okay, maybe a place called heaven is real and it's a really nice place, everybody wants enough Jesus to get into heaven. But he said, what not everybody wants is enough Jesus to legitimately change their life. And that's these people that Jesus is, is talking about. See, when they, when they come to Jesus, they have a tendency to see themselves primarily as, I'm a sufferer in need of a solution. And so Jesus is going to make my life better. When Jesus says all throughout his time here is that you, you may be a sufferer. You may be suffering from all kinds of things, which Jesus evidently cares very deeply about. But at bottom, underneath all of our suffering, we are sinners in need of a savior. That's what Jesus came to be. And so coming to faith and coming to repentance means me being willing to hand my entire life over to Jesus with this open-handed willingness that's born of this realization that though I have tried to be my own God and my own savior, I now realize that I'm not qualified to hold either of those positions in my life. Jesus and Jesus alone is. So you go ahead and take it and take me wherever you want me to go. And that, amen. And so that kind of, well, let's do it if we're going to do it. Uh, All right. Amen. That kind of holistic surrender never happens in these people's lives because they heard the message, but they heard it with a shallow heart, with the emotion only. And, and so what, what that, that's the second warning. What that brings us to is our third and, and final warning today. And it's this, beware of listening with a divided heart. Matthew chapter 13, verse 22 says, Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the seduction of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now, now, hopefully I've shown that there's, there's, a, you know, there's an unsettling nature to all of the, the scenarios that Jesus is describing here. But what, what is particularly unsettling about this third group of people is that, uh, let me just let you in on how I interpret this parable. Uh, and there's a lot of gaps that Jesus did not fill in. So there, there are parts of it that are, we just have to you know, interpret it for ourselves. Let me tell you how I interpret this parable. I think it's pretty clear to see that people from the first two groups are not really Christians. 
And there are other church leaders that don't agree with that. That's just how I interpret it, because it looks like these people, after a time, walk away. Uh, I think what pretty much everybody agrees is that it's pretty obvious that the final group of people, this obedient soil with the 160-30-fold crop increase, those people obviously are Christians. What's really unsettling about this third group is that it's really hard to tell. And that, I think, is what Jesus' point was. Jesus is talking about people who, who on the one hand, when he says that the, that the seed gets sown, uh, but, but the growth gets choked out by the thorns, on the one hand, what that must mean is that these people had to have produced some kind of growth. And their growth doesn't just burn up in the sun immediately. Uh, it's not that the seed is gone immediately and they walk out. So these people stick around and they, 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 they appear to have some kind of growth in their life because what would the thorns be choking out if not for the growth? But, but then on the other hand of that, it's the thorns that are keeping them from, from actually being fruitful. And so the kind of person that Jesus is describing, if, if, if you want to figure out what type of person Jesus is painting the picture of here, I think it's easiest to do it by comparing this group, the third group, to the second group, the one we just talked about. All right, when it comes to people in the second group, the truth is it was never about Jesus. With this group of people, it is about Jesus. It's not just about Jesus. It's about Jesus and something else. Meaning there's a division in, in their hearts. And as a result, their life is choked out. And so these people, according to Jesus' words here, these people, they, they really don't see themselves changing year after year. You know, they don't, they don't see the fruit of the Spirit progressively manifesting itself in their life. You know, they're, they're not loving their enemies better than they used to. They're not handling criticism better than they used to. They're not kind of maintaining a buoyant hope in the midst of suffering better than they used to as, as years go by. These people don't sense the healing presence of God in their life. Uh, these people never really ex- get to see what it's like for God's power to course through them and enter the lives of the people around them in their life because what, what's happened is, uh, and actually I think these people more often than not, they're not even sure where they stand. They're constantly in doubt. They're constantly anxious. And, and so just like in this parable, it's just really hard to tell. Right? If, if the mistake that people in the first group, the ones who listen with a hard heart, only intellectually, if the mistake that the people in the first group make is that they try to reduce the, Jesus to just a concept, and the mistake that, that, that people in the second group make is that they, they reduce Jesus as just a means to an end, then the mistake that people in this third group make is, is, is they, they try to reduce Jesus to just a piece. He's just a piece of the puzzle. He's not everything. He's not everything. He, he's necessary. He's just not the whole thing. And so there's this division. They have these, these divided hearts between Jesus and all of the other things that they believe they need in order to be happy. The, the lie that drives this lifestyle is the lie that, that it's got to be Jesus and something else, and then I'll be healed, and then I'll be whole. And then I'll be fulfilled. And then I'll be enough. And then my life can begin. It's Jesus and, and my career. It's Jesus and the approval of people. It's Jesus and being highly respected. It's Jesus and romantic love. Or, or as Jesus says here, Jesus and money. Jesus in some kind of stage in life that magically all my problems will go away. And I think it's really interesting that Jesus describes a kind of choking that takes place in these people's lives because choking implies this constant struggle and this constant tension, and really that's what marks these people's lives. And I think it's what's unique to these people's lives because there's, if you think about the first two groups of people that walk out, 
there's not really a tension that exists in them or a struggle that exists in them because eventually they just go away. And they're not being torn between two worlds anymore. They're just wholly outside of the kingdom. But, but people in this category, they just know too much. When I was thinking about this, there's this, there's this scene. It's this always really spoken to me. It's in John chapter 6. It's right after Jesus. You know, he talks about how he's the bread of life. And, and there's these hundreds, maybe thousands of people that are just hanging on his every word. And they're following, following him around. And they all look like they're committed. Uh, but at the end of John chapter 6, Jesus gives this really hard teaching and it offends so many people and, uh, and they all walk away and Jesus turns and he looks to his disciples and he asks them, are, are you going to walk away as well? And, and what Peter's response to that question has always meant so much to me. I don't know why it's always just really resonated with me. Uh, I could so sympathize with this. Peter looks at Jesus and I'm going to paraphrase. He just says, Jesus, where am I supposed to go? You, you can imagine, this is a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. Rabbis did not patrol Galilee looking for young men to invest their lives and their wisdom in. But Jesus did that for Peter. And so Peter, he hears Jesus ask, are you going to go away as well? Of course, Jesus wasn't asking that for his good. He was asking that for their good and for our good. And Peter, in response to that, says, Jesus, where am I supposed to go? After seeing what I've seen in you, after hearing what I've heard from you, after experiencing what I've experienced in your presence, let's say I did leave, where do I go from here? And, and what is so encouraging to me about that in John 6 is that if you follow the life of Peter, at that point in his life, he was far, far from a robust, mature faith. I mean, Peter would go wrong to grossly misrepresent his, the strength of his own faith he denied even knowing who his rabbi was. And then later in life, he got into all kinds of other troubles. So Peter was far from the finished product. But what scripture showing us there is that a door had been closed behind him. He just knew too much. And that's who I think Jesus is describing here in this third type of people. You, you know too much. You know, you, you, you do have Jesus in your heart. And so you can't go back. But you have so many other things besides Jesus in your heart. So you're not going forward. And so there's, there's this division because you're constantly looking to someone else or something else to be what only Jesus can be for you. And it's that division in your own heart that's keeping you from producing this life and this health and this growth and this joy. And, and so in summary, what this parable is, is, is written to tell us is that there's, there's three wrong ways to hear the message of the kingdom of God. You can hear it with a hard heart. You can hear it with a shallow heart. You can hear it with a divided heart. Now, I don't have to spend a lot of time on this fourth soil because the fourth soil represents the type of person who hears the message of Jesus correctly. And as a result, they produce this supernatural crop in their life, some 100, some 60, some 30. That's the kind of person that we all want to be. That's a person that throughout their life abounds in the fruit of the Spirit, things like love and joy and peace and patience and all the things that we all want a whole lot more of. This is the person who lives a life that people, by the end of their life, look on and say, you, you can't make sense of that except for the presence of Jesus in them. That's what we all want to be. And so what I'd like to do today is end by telling you what you need to do to become this fourth kind of person. That's what I would like to do today, but I can't. This teaching was really hard to figure out how to end. Because in this, in this parable, Jesus likens us to soil. And the thing about soil is that it doesn't do anything. Actually, the thing about soil is that it can't do anything. 
There are no seven habits of highly effective soil. And so if this parable is, is going to begin to produce real change in you and I, the first thing that we have to understand about it is that its purpose is not to get us to add a bunch of activities and habits to our routine. As much as we love behavioral modification, the purpose of this parable is not to instill that in us. What this parable is designed to do is something a whole lot harder. It's designed to get us to do the one thing that the human heart most naturally fears and resists, which is to face ourselves and to get really curious about what's really going on in our own hearts and our own lives. I, I, I'm going to make this personal, and we're winding down. We're almost at the end. If you could just please lean into this kind of last part as we begin to conclude. This parable is designed to get you as the hearer to ask yourself if your faith is not merely intellectual. To ask yourself if it hasn't sunk beneath the surface in your life and affected real change in your heart because you've listened with a hard heart. This parable is designed to get you to ask yourself if you have looked at Jesus merely as a means to your own end. And that while maybe you've thought that you've been entering his kingdom, the truth is you've been trying to get him to enter yours because you've been listening with a shallow heart. And this parable is designed to get you to ask yourself if the real reason if the real reason underneath every other reason that you're not seeing the kind of growth and the kind of change in your life that you want to see, that you read about in Scripture and that you see in people around you, if the real reason that's not happening in you is because you have looked to so many other things and so many other people to be what only Jesus can be for you and you've listened with a divided heart. See, when, when we begin asking ourselves those kinds of questions and following those questions wherever they lead, that's when this parable can begin to change us because there's not, there's not a single person alive. There's not a single saint with vital signs that in following those questions where they lead that are not eventually going to find a hardness and rocks and thorns in their heart. But I, I want to tell you this. In finding that in our own hearts, in using this parable as a diagnostic tool to face ourselves and in really beginning to sense the scope and the gravity of the issues in your own heart, the absolute worst thing that you could do is then shift gears into this self-salvation mode because, because, and this is Jesus' point, soil doesn't till itself. Soil does not remove its own rocks and it does not uproot its own thorns. Soil is entirely dependent on the skill and the care of the gardener. And so finally where this parable is designed to bring us is to a place where we understand how utterly we depend on our gardener, Jesus Christ. I'm going to call the worship team and, and, and we're going to close today. What, what we're looking at when we see Calvary, when we see what Jesus went on to do just years after delivering this parable, the work of Jesus at Calvary is not just the greatest display of love in the world. It's not just the greatest display of role reversal in the world. What we're seeing at Calvary is the resolution to this parable, the answer to the problem that this parable leaves us with. Because the more that I thought about these four groups of soil, in delivering this message, I don't think Jesus intended for any one of us to hear this and think, oh, yeah, I'm number four. The obedient, healthy soil that, that's exploding with spiritual life, that's me. But man, I feel sorry for those other three groups of people. I don't think that anybody perfectly fits into that category. But what we're seeing 
at Calvary is the solution to this parable. Because on the cross, what happened at the end of Jesus' life is that for the first time in history, a gardener was willing to enter the ground to himself be sown for the sake of the soil. And what Jesus was doing with his life, death, and resurrection is allowing himself to be broken so that our hard hearts could be softened. He was allowing himself to be crushed under the weight of our rocks so that our shallow hearts could be deepened. And he was allowing himself to be pierced by our thorns so that our divided hearts could be made whole. And so finally, where this parable is designed to bring the hearer is to a place where I understand and you understand how utterly and entirely we depend on our gardener to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Because that posture, that posture, and only that posture is the posture of a heart that is really ready to hear and to receive and to understand and to internalize and to be transformed by the message of the kingdom, which will result in supernatural growth. And so the final question that the parable of the sower leaves you asking is, have you been brought to that place? What I'm asking is, do you understand that you depend on Jesus exactly as much as soil depends on its gardener? The kingdom of God comes by hearing. So be careful how you hear. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so dependent and we are so desperate and we are so incapable of even hearing your word correctly. God, there are so many stones. There are so many thorns. There is so much hardness, callousness in our hearts. Father, I want to thank you for Jesus, the divine gardener that was willing to soften our hearts, to deepen our hearts, to heal our hearts by his finished work at Calvary. God, I just want to ask that we would be a community of people that takes the time to hear and to hear correctly. That the truth of your kingdom and the truth of your son would sink deeply into our hearts like a seed. And though we might not always see its effects and though it might take longer than we think, that it would grow and it would produce life in a way that glory has to go to you. No higher calling for our lives than to bring glory to you. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.